Our Father and our God, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of the Word of God. The Word of God, which is a lamp to our feet and a light upon our path. That, oh God, you might help us uh, that you would open uh, the understanding of our eyes so that we might behold those wondrous things that are written in your word. And that, oh God, you might help us to then apply the truths that are found therein. So help me, Lord, to be a faithful preacher. Help us all to be faithful hearers. And this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, um, the message I'm preaching today is one that really is about uh, status. And I think all of us would be aware of different statuses that uh, we can have. If we fill forms very often, we find that the form is asking us to express what our marital status might be, our financial status, our work status, uh, our residency status, all kinds of statuses. But there is one status, which is the only status that counts into all eternity. And that is the status of the Christian. And it is a status that is described in words that make it hard to explain the wonder of this status. It is a word that you struggle to find adjectives that correctly describe the, the glory, the brilliance, the excellency of this status. And so as I've struggled to find a word that captures the essence of this status, I've simply used the word wonderful, a wonderful status. And that status is found in uh, the first epistle that Peter wrote that was read to us. Uh, it is found in uh, verse 9 of chapter 2, where Peter describes that status. Now, first of all, Peter has written this letter uh, to the scattered people of God. And he's writing essentially, in his mind, he knows that many of those who've been scattered from Jerusalem uh, to all uh, a, a big region of Asia, what is today Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Uh, he's aware that as they're out there, they're experiencing suffering. They're experiencing difficulties. They're experiencing persecution. They were living in the days of the emperor Nero. And Nero was a notorious emperor who persecuted Christians. So Peter is aware that God's people are under duress. And so as he writes this epistle, he's writing it with a view to encourage them and help them to, to see God and be encouraged in seeing this great God that they serve. And so as he writes to them, he starts off by, in chapter 1, highlighting a few doctrines. One commentator has actually said that the epistle, this first epistle of Peter, is the most theological of all the epistles in the New Testament. He thinks that it's more theological than even the book of Romans. And he qualifies that by saying that if by theology, theological it means studying the theology of God, there is no other single 
epistle in the New Testament, in very short um, punches, we find the doctrine of God in different ways highlighted. And that's what Peter does in the first chapter. He starts off with the Trinity or the Triunity in the very first verse, uh, giving us a view of the different function of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, he tells us about election, about sanctification, about the atonement, about the inheritance that awaits the saints. He describes the, in, in some shape or form the incarnation, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a very short passage, and Peter is doing this uh, to bring to mind those who are suffering these truths, these grand truths, before he then launches to give instructions to encourage them about godly living and to live as God's holy people. It reminds us, really, doesn't it? And that is a pattern we find in the New Testament, uh, that many of the writers, and particularly Paul, would start off with a doctrinal passage where he uh, highlights the doctrines that are found in Scripture and then brings application that we need to be grounded in truths that we might understand how to live. We find the same things done by Peter. Before he launches to give instructions of how they should live in the midst of their difficulties, he first of all lays down the foundation of doctrine and teaching. It's a pity that there are many today in the church who feel that doctrine is irrelevant or sound biblical teaching is really not that useful. Well, it's very clear from Scripture that we need to give it due consideration and regard. And so he gives that uh, in the first chapter. He gives us a few significant and important doctrines. And then in the second chapter, he starts off by really highlighting the work of redemption. And particularly uh, from verses 4 to 8, the work of redemption, but he uses terminology and imagery that the Jews would identify with very easily in terms of, of, of building the te a temple and a, a spiritual house. But he's using that term knowing that even for the New Testament church, there is symbolic reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he uses it to good effect. We today can understand and can identify with that language. And then in verse 9, uh, he caps off that little passage there where he is talking about God's work of redemption by then explaining the outcome of that work of redemption. The outcome is this status, but I said it is amazing, a wonderful status for the Christian. And so I'll look at two things that are highlighted here or consider two different things. First of all, look at our current and enduring wonderful status in Christ. And then secondly, look at our former sad status. So first of all, our current enduring and wonderful status in Christ. You notice that Christ is at the very heart of what Peter is saying here. Let me just read those verses again that were read from verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected 
indeed by man, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones have been built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also are appointed. And so there's this picture of this house, or this building, that is held together by this chief cornerstone. Cornerstone is a stone that either is used as the first stone to build a foundation, it's a kind of a reference point, or used to hold two walls together that join. It is a significant uh, piece in a building. And so Paul of uh, Peter is saying that this is the centerpiece of God's people. Christ Jesus is at the very heart, at the center, the reference of the church of Christ. And so the outcome of what Christ has done as the chief cornerstone, as the one whom God's people come to, is what then Peter describes in this most amazing description regarding what our status is, having been redeemed in Christ. And it's marvelous, it's really marvelous. And there are four things he, he uses to describe this status. The first one he says is that we are a chosen generation or a chosen people. In other words, the first description he uses regarding this status is that we are chosen. Chosen. It is a fascinating word. It is a fascinating truth, a truth filled with high mystery. It means that God has chosen a people or a generation or a group, chosen them. And this is a doctrine that troubles a lot of people, the doctrine of election. It disturbs them. They can't quite see how God can choose some and not all. Let me just read from the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, because it's a useful little document for us to refer to every so often. But in regarding to God's decrees, chapter 3 and paragraph 5 says this, those people who are predestined to life were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. According to his eternal and unchangeable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will. This is how God chose us, according to the good pleasure of his will, the unchangeable purpose and the secret counsel of God. He chose them in Christ for eternal glory, purely as a result of his free grace and love, without anything else about them serving as a condition or cause moving him to do so. In other words, there is nothing that God would see in us 
Nothing we have done, nothing that could emanate from us that could draw God towards choosing us. It was all an act of free grace and love done before the foundation of the earth. Before any human being existed, God chose some to be predestined to life. And that is what Peter is reminding those scattered out there. You are chosen. Chosen as, as, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. Pardon me, I'm reading the wrong, uh, that's uh, First Peter, but Ephesians 1 and uh, chapter 1 verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So God's choosing is simply out of his love and grace. But notice he chooses us in him, in Christ, our chief cornerstone. And so that is how Peter starts off by describing this most wonderful status that belongs to the Christian. The Christian is amongst a chosen group. But not only that, uh, he says that we are a royal priesthood. Now there's much that's been in the news in recent times regarding the royal family. Peter is telling the Christians, you are royalty. You who are Christians here, do you know you are royalty? You belong to the king. You are children of the king. You are royalty. You belong to the, the king of the universe, his own children. Royalty. But not only are you royalty, but you are a priesthood. You are priests. You have that office of priesthood that has been bestowed upon you. And so you are royal priests, royal priesthood. Uh, Jesus Christ was both, is both king and priest. He is our king, and he is the high priest. And so we serve him as priests in his royal household, the one who is king and the one who is priest. And Zechariah in chapter 6 and verse 13 explained that the Messiah who would come would be one who sat on a throne as a king and one who ministered as a priest upon a throne. And he said that those two offices would be made at peace, the office of the king and the priest. And so we, who now have access to the very throne of God and who serve as priests under the high priest, making sacrifices that are accepted. That is how Peter puts it in verse 5 of uh, uh, chapter 2. He said, you as living stones have been built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. In other words, we, our very lives, as Paul puts it as well in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we give ourselves as living sacrifices 
which is our reasonable uh, worship or service. Our lives as we serve Christ are living sacrifices. We are offering sacrifices that are acceptable before God in Christ. And so we are a royal priesthood. It's marvelous to consider that we are royalty because we belong to the king and we serve as priests, those who have been joined and have been made friends of God and can approach him and make acceptable sacrifices before him. But then he goes on to say that not only are we a royal priesthood, but that we are a holy nation. We are holy. Those who have been made holy. The very first verse of the letter, Paul talks about him being an apostle, writing this letter to the pilgrims. And then he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit. Those who are God's people have been sanctified. They've been set apart. They've been made holy. Uh, and the sanctification being referred to here is that uh, definitive sanctification where the Spirit of God sanctifies us and makes us holy. That those who are in Christ are new creatures, a new creation. Behold, the new has come and the old has gone. They have been made new. They have been made holy. But furthermore, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, speaking of Christ's atonement, atoning work, where his blood was sprinkled upon those that he died for, atoned for. Atonement involves removal of certain things, involves removal of our sins and the offensiveness of our sins before God. It involves the propitiating of God's wrath, taking it away. And so we are holy. We've been sanctified. We have been washed with the blood of Christ. A holy nation. We belong to a nation where there is a great king who rules. In fact, we can argue that we are looking towards the perfect theocracy. We had a theocracy in the Old Testament. There is a day coming that we shall enter into the ultimate perfect theocracy where God rules as the king and we serve him in heaven for all eternity. Um, Peter puts it this way in uh, Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And Abraham, as he is counted as a, a one of those men of faith in Hebrews 11, he says that Abraham recognized that as he lived in the promised land in Canaan, that was a foreign country. He recognized that it wasn't his true abode. It was foreign. He moved around with tents from one place to the other because he was looking to a city with foundations, a city whose architect and builder is God himself. He recognized that there was a nation, the true nation that he really belonged to, where the maker, the architect, the builder is God himself. And so Peter described this status, a holy nation. 
holy people who form a nation under God. And then he says that not only are they a holy nation, but they are his own special people. Some um, translation, translations render it as God's chosen possession, or rather God's special possession. And with that, we see that God views his people as special. It is something astounding to think about. God is self-existent. God is self-sufficient. God does not need anything to add to his essence. But God looks at his people and he sees them as special. So special that you go to the extent of giving up his only begotten son, of consigning him to the agony of crucifixion, uh, to, as it were, uh, turn his face away from him and his wrath, the full extent of God's wrath falling upon his dear beloved son that Christ cries on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, the son of your love? It is one of those amazing things that are hard to comprehend. But it shows us, it gives us a glimpse of how special God's people are to him. That he elected before the foundations of the earth by grace. And so these special people, he has purchased for himself with blood, bought them. And we see in this uh, phrase, this description of uh, <clears throat> his own special people that now belong to him, <clears throat> we see in this God's redeeming grace, purchasing, buying those who belong uh, to uh, the devil, buying, purchasing them from that slavery and that bondage and causing his son to die in our place. His own special people. But I'd like you to notice that as, as Peter describes these different aspects of this status, it's important for us to notice that as much as Peter is writing to the church, he's putting and using language that makes it very clear that he's talking about a corporate status. Now, we who are Christians have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We are saved as individuals. We enter into this transaction individually between Christ and ourselves. We repent of our sins 
and we believe in him individually. Nobody can do it on our behalf. It is something that is personal. Jesus Christ is our Lord, my Lord, you as an individual, your Lord and your Savior. But we also learn from the scriptures that the corporate reality of the Christian is significant. And we are reminded again and again. We are members of a body. A body that is held together. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that there's no body, no, no part of that body can, that can function on its own. There is a very organic relationship between these different parts of Christ's body. And so that corporate element or nature of our status as Christians is highlighted here. We could argue that what Peter is talking about here is the, the Church of Christ, the universal church, but I would argue that he's more specifically wanting it to be seen as the local church, the body of Christ best expressed as the local church. Later on in uh, the fifth chapter of this verse, uh, Peter addresses the elders. The elders are the last people he addresses, and he addresses the elders in each of the churches. So he has an, his intent in writing this letter is that the elders of those individual churches would read this letter. And all the exhortations he has made would be applied to each individual local church. So he says, the elders who are among you in chapter 5, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compassion, but willingly, not for, honest, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So he's, he's giving instructions. You elders, go to each of your churches, teach them these things. Teach them what their status is within the context of the local church, that they are a chosen generation, that they are a royal priesthood, that they are a holy nation, God's special people. There's that corporate element. And we see God best and most greatly being glorified by his people as a church. Uh, Psalm 48 that was read gives us a sense of the, the, the glory of the church uh, in its context as a church or how God glorifies his church. Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, describing uh, how God views the glory of his church as he dwells within it, as he is its fortress and its refuge. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces, he is known as her refuge. Verse 9, we have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go all around her, count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, 
that you may tell it to the generation following. See the beauty of the church of Christ. See what God has done amongst his people. Now he has made those who were once a lost people uh, come to know him. Uh, he has beautified them uh, with his righteousness. And so there is that context that we need to see this status, this wonderful enduring status in Christ is our status, but it is really within the context of the local church. Now, just a very quick lesson and an application before I, I move to the second uh, point, and that is, first of all, the doctrine of election is mysterious. Uh, many, many Christians have problems, we've uh, mentioned that, but it's one we should rejoice in often. We might struggle sometimes because we might feel we, owe an, we, we kind of owe an apology, or we might be uh, presenting ourselves as proud or arrogant. Election is a truth we should rejoice in. We were not elected because there was anything in us. It was by pure grace and love. God taking an initiative with us having nothing that commended us to him in taking that initiative. It's a high biblical truth and it's a high mystery. It means we have a debt of love. A debt of love. Because of this grace in election. And so it is a motivation for us to love Christ, to serve him, to obey him for his mercy and grace and love towards us. But also in terms of application, democracy and all its advocacy for personal liberties is wonderful. We live in a democratic nation and we enjoy the privileges of democracy. But one of the things that democracy does, and democracy facilitates wealth and comfort, but one thing that democracy can unintentionally create is a sense of independence and a sense of self-sufficient, and a loss of the sense of community. So much so that even within the church itself, people can lose a sense of the community of church. Uh, it's a very sad thing that increasingly uh, we live in an age where uh, the Christian free agent is becoming more and more prevalent. A Christian who feels they have no need to belong to a local church, no need to identify with a local church, no need to become part of a local church and serve in that local church. Uh, it could very well be that the, the, the liberties of the individual above the community uh, may affect our thinking. And so that even the community of church becomes something that I no longer need to uh, uh, submit myself to. So I would encourage, I might even ask a question, do our liberties, our individual liberties, impact our view on the community of church, on our need to give ourselves to serve with all we can within the context of the local church? Our enduring status is best lived out and our lives as Christians are most glorifying within the context of a local church. 
Well, secondly, let me very, go, very quickly go to the last point, which is our former sad status. Peter explains what our status is and the brilliance of it. And, and I've only really skimmed on the surface. There is much one could talk about regarding this status. But we need to look at our former sad status. Because that former sad status even increases our appreciation of our current enduring wonderful status. How does Peter put it? Peter says this was what our sad status was before. He starts at the end of verse 9. He says that he, we, uh, this is the status we have, that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the first thing we learn is that our former sad status was one of darkness. We were in gloom, one of darkness, one in which we didn't really quite understand or really comprehend what we were on about. We didn't really see things the way we need to see them. We were like how Proverbs describes this man in Proverbs 14. It says that uh, there's a man uh, who walks on a particular way. Uh, not knowing that the way he is walking on is leading to death. All of us who are Christians here who've been saved, there was one time we were in darkness. There's one time the God of this age had blinded our minds from believing the gospel. And we were in this dark state, in gloom. That was our status, in gloom. Filled with darkness, could not see things as they really are. Furthermore, he says, who are once not a people, but another people of God, who are once not a people, once did not belong to God at all, once were alienated from God. There's a sense in which once we were those who were lost, lost. As John Newton puts it, I was once lost. That is how John Newton understood his life, a lost man. Lost out there, not belonging to God. That is what you and I were before we came to trust in Jesus Christ. Lost. And without hope, without God, alienated from God, strangers from all the blessings that God has to grant and to give to those who are his. But also, as Peter says, not only was it that we were not a people and uh, alienated from God, but he says we had not obtained mercy. In other words, we didn't know God's mercy. We were what the scripture says, we were objects of wrath. In other words, God's wrath and condemnation was hanging over our heads before we were saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. We had not obtained mercy. Wrath and condemnation hung over our heads 
That was our status. We were in a state of doom, doomed, God's judgment hanging over us. That is what we were like, doomed, a status of doom. That is what we were like. In gloom, lost, doomed. And that is healthy for God's people to remember. So that when we look at this current and enduring wonderful status that is in Christ, we might be reminded where we came from to find ourselves in such a wonderful status because we were once those who were in gloom and lost and doomed. Hallelujah that God took us from such depth and has bestowed upon us such a status. Application, let's delight in our current status because it has a reference. The reference is from where we came, our former status. We ought to remember it often. Uh, the Bible reminds us that we need to remember often where we came from. Remember the Passover feast when Israel was delivered from Egypt? God, God commanded Israel to often partake in the Passover once a year. That they might remember that they were once in the house of bondage in Egypt. Before God, by strength of arm, delivered them from the house of bondage. To remember often that they were once in the house of bondage. We need to remember from where we have come. We don't want our status in Christ to become too familiar. So we kind of lose sight of the depth from which we were lifted up. Regardless of what our background was, regardless of whether we were brought up in a Christian family, regardless of whether we experienced much common grace in our lives so that we did not really enter into much wickedness, regardless of what our status was before we came to Christ, we were in gloom, we were lost, and we were doomed, but for the grace of God. Let us remember this often and rejoice and give praise to God that we might live for him forevermore. However, and let this word however sink in, however, if you have not believed in Jesus Christ, this is your current state whether you think it is the case or not, whether you feel it is the case or not, your current state is that you are in gloom, you are lost, and you are doomed. And let me encourage you by making it more stark for you. The gloom that is described and the lostness and the doom right now would be nothing in comparison to how amplified it will be on that judgment day. Because the gloom and the state of lostness and the doom that shall be yours for all eternity in hell will be one that is incomprehensible. And so I'd like you to give serious thought of how sad this current status that you're in is. 
that you might cry out to the Lord and be spared from entering into that eternal gloom, eternal lostness, and eternal doom that will be found on the day of judgment. It is urgent. You do not want eternity to find you in that state. Well, may the Lord help us. Uh, doctrine is important, as I said at the beginning, it encourages us to live godly in Christ. At the end of the epistle, Peter explains why he wrote this epistle. He, gives, he says, this is my intent in verse 12. Uh, our, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I considered him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which we stand. This status gives us a, a view, in, you can argue in a sense, of God's true grace in which we stand. This status is only ours because of the loving kindness and the grace of God upon which we stand. May we be encouraged in our service, in our love, in our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.